If you're the kind of music fan who could be heard saying, don't bore us, tell us what the score is, then I'm not sure this is the episode for you. If you think musicians should stay out of politics, if you think that music journalism is really about recommending records, then maybe this is exactly the podcast for you. Because as I continue this adventure and exploration into what the future of the music press holds and where music media might go, I spoke to Emma Garland, who is an absolutely incredible writer and wonderful human being. And this conversation covers everything from Lana Del Rey karaoke to Me Too exposés. And I hope you will understand why Emma was pretty much the first person I asked to be in this series of podcasts. And I'm really thrilled to share this conversation with you. So I'm asking everyone the same question to start. What is journalism? I think uh, as far as culture goes, I think it's important to make a distinction first off between like culture writing and culture journalism because they're two different things with two different functions. Um, Journalism is reporting, I think. So it's going out, finding a story that should be told and telling it in a way that is engaging and factually accurate. Um, And that's true whether you're doing conflict reporting or a profile of an artist where you're going to their house or being on the road with them for a long period of time. Culture writing is entertainment. It's driven by like voice, personality, humor, imagination, creativity, criticism, and those can and should be a part of journalism as well. But culture writing doesn't have like as much of a duty to reality. Um, There's like more room to play. And I think I often fall down on the side of writing more than journalism if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. See, you you get top points because you're the first person that's answered this question based on what it is that you do and the, and the, def- the definitive differences because one of the reasons I wanted to do this series is I think that music journalism is something that doesn't really exist that much. It's kind of rare to have yeah. journalism around music. So much of it is writing. Um, a lot of it is, is, a, is a level above t- um, typing. Um, Mm -hmm. which I think was a Hunter S. Thompson thing. I think he said, that's not (laughs) writing, that's just typing. Anyway, so before we we get too far in, um, I really wanted to talk to you because I think you probably do something that's closer to like intersectional music writing than a lot of other people out there. I don't know if that's a misuse of the the term. So if you quickly introduce yourself, Emma, so the listeners know who you are and the myriad of places you've written. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I am Emma Garland. I'm a freelance uh, culture writer, music writer, journalist uh, although I always feel like a bit of a phony when I use that word to describe myself but I suppose it is ostensibly what I do Uh, I kind of started out well I cut my teeth basically working at Noisy and Vice for over seven years uh, which is pretty Mm. (laughs) a pretty substantial chunk of time I browsed your your author page (laughs) and I think it's 93 pages of Vice content yeah so much of it is just like uh, like premieres from mm. 2015 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, back when the premiere was yeah. really booming <laughs> uh, yeah and then after after Vice I um, uh, was the um, the digital editor of Huck uh, which I a uh, job I finished quite recently um, to go full back freelance and to work full time on my first book which I'm currently working on which is about about emo mainstream emo yes (laughs) we'll talk about that at the end because uh I imagine that that could turn into two hours of us chatting about emo bands and I'm sure that's what (laughs) everyone tuned in for I mean 
I mean, <laughs> some people will have done. Um, and then I looked up your credits you've written for the Sunday Times, New Statesman, Rolling Stone. Like yes. your freelance CV is um, a bit of everywhere, which is... Um, <laughs> but I can imagine you got into music writing and particularly... Like one of the things I found is, especially Americans talk about their beat and it feels like mm. you have a few different topics which are recurring. Like you've done, I mean, some of the stuff was quite funny on Vice. I saw you were covering like Love Island and things, but from like oh, yeah. quite a different angle to most of the other editorial. Um, yeah, we kind of took like, we kind of psychoanalyzed everyone mm. on Love Island, uh, which kind of by the end, I think lost. It was fun at the time, but I think by the, as the show went on mm. and the kind of turnaround had changed, um, we sort of struggled to do that in a way that felt ethical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, that was a fun a fun thing to do. But what do you remember growing up reading music magazines, cultural magazines? What it was that gave you the spark to want to do the kind of writing you do now? Yeah, weirdly. So I kind of have always felt more influenced by literature than anything else. Like my background is in English literature and creative writing, and that's. It was always fiction and, you know, books that got me interested in writing at all. Like the first thing I ever wrote, I remember, was like on the family Windows PC that, you know, the mm. one with the big thonk button that you have to like turn on with your toe. And I uh, basically wrote a f script for a film that was just like the labyrinth, but with some of the details changed. <laughs> um, and you're probably like four. <laughs> I was young, yeah. yeah. I was like, yeah, like nine, maybe. Yeah. Um, well, maybe a bit older yeah. than that, but yeah. Uh, I'm just wondering what's the youngest the film director's ever been now. That's probably a whole other <laughs> clickbait piece. <laughs> Harmony Kareen probably up there yeah. among the, well, not director, but, you know, he wrote kids when he was like 19 or mm. something. Anyway, uh, yeah, it was, uh, and uh, kind of all my favorite journalists then are people that were, or, you know, my formative influences were all people that I discovered through literature more than anything else. So it's like, Hunter S. Thompson, Joan Didion, Hilton Owls, Grail Marcus, like people who have that American journalists who really come from that American tradition of, you know, literary writing, um, so what, which isn't so much of a thing in the UK. Yeah. Was was your um, choice of floor to sit on with your legs crossed flicking through um, things in, in Waterstones rather than WH Smith's then? Yeah, mm. definitely. Like I definitely, I used to, obviously used to buy like, enemy and rock sound and things like that but I the writing never really made much of an impression on me at all I would sort of buy them because I'm like a child of the early noughties so I was still getting using magazines to get my information mm. I wanted like you know that's how you find out who's on tour and I bought like a million copies of Kerrang uh and mostly for the compilation cds and the vhs and the posters <laughs> the vhs compilations and the posters yeah. yeah it was kind of more of a they were for me like more of a mixed medium purchase mm. than i wouldn't really buy it for the writing so much the only magazine i can think of that i would buy religiously specifically for the writing was plan b do you yeah, remember that, that was great and it turned into careless talk cost live didn't it? yeah <laughs> yeah it was it's an absolutely amazing magazine very short-lived uh because i guess it's hard to uh mm. <laughs> hard for a magazine like that to have such longevity but that for to me that was so rebellious and like so imaginative and would cover things in a way that was just very singular and that is something that i never really saw anywhere else in music journalism growing up um so i guess it wasn't really until 
blogging really took off in like the late noughties, early 2010s, that I started to feel really excited by music journalism and to see it as something that I would even want to do. Hmm. It's really interesting because I think essay collections were definitely a big thing for me. Mm. I mean, predictably, both of the Lester Bangs ones, um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which which is being like a 15-year-old reading Shakespeare, felt like it was cut from a similar cloth. And um, But like, for instance, there was a few writers in Kerrang! at that, that time when you would have been reading it like ben myers has now gone on to become reasonably famous mm. as a writer and stevie chick is still one of the best writers out there and i think yeah it wasn't wasn't necessarily the worst time to have been a Kerrang reader um but no it, definitely not but as, but as a magazine it didn't have that full breadth and for instance you talked about huck earlier which is just interesting as a magazine that if people don't know it i'm always surprised um i got mm. into like the earlier iteration of it like the band before the band um yeah. and it was something called adrenaline magazine and i think it was some of the same editorial team ended up being involved in huck and i yeah. adored that magazine because like that was how i first read about william burroughs and bukowski because they did a pollution special and mm. it was surface against sewage for a few pages and then about the littered mind of bukowski or something um and that to me was something that really excited me about something which was essentially an extreme sports magazine that yeah. was bringing in other culture. Um, and I feel like we've not necessarily had an era of those types of publications online because the web doesn't yeah. always allow it. A hundred percent. I think the the thing with Huck as well, and, you know, in its in its DNA, whether it's Huck or it's Adrenaline, because of because it has its roots in extreme sports, it's inherently countercultural. And that means that you can then broaden it out into absolutely anything mm. And it feels interesting, you know, you can cover culture, sports, whatever. Um, and while, you know, while something like Kerrang, for example, is kind of countercultural because it's about rock music at the time where it would have been at its peak, rock music was a mainstream thing. Yeah. And it didn't really encompass, it had some skating and stuff in it, I, I suppose, but the focus was very much on music and it was very myopic in its in its focus. Whereas, yeah, for me, what's more interesting is sort of, taking that cultural lens as a way to look at the world at large so there's a couple of your pieces which when i went through your archive that really stood out one was a piece you wrote i think about five years ago about how women were leading the revolution in culture um and you talked about an artist that had been to tehran tehran mm. i'm going to say that word correctly not like the car um and pussy riot and like a mm. new generation of women that were not just speaking up and speaking out, they were using like every part of their art to really express something. Um, mm. And there was a few other pieces in that I noticed where you managed to bring a much bigger topic in in to cover some much smaller artists. And I imagine for those artists it was beneficial. Um, so I was just curious whether you start with, I want to write about this topic and now I need to find some artists. Or did you think, I need to write about this artist, how do I get the most possible people to read it? Or is it both? Yeah. I think it's a uh, yeah a little from column A a little from column B like the the artists always on my radar like I remember that piece that you just mentioned about the sort of like female artists kind of using their music to as a form of resistance essentially um, I remember that piece coming about because uh, an artist called Nadia Turan had kind of come across my path I think we did a premiere for one of her songs on Noisy and I just found what she was doing to be so interesting and her music was really fucking good. Um, and that kind of got me... So basically, I I did my master's thesis as well in, like, 
uh, nonviolent, basically like humor is a form of nonviolent resistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm always interesting, interested in ways that people are sort of pushing back against the confines of whatever society they're in, in a way that is like artistic or nonviolent or creativity or creative in some way. Um, and that was something that she would, I felt like she was really doing. And I kind of then started thinking about other artists that were doing a similar sort of thing. Um, and at the time, especially like, you know, the, that piece, I think I would have written around 2016, I'm guessing. And the conversation in music at the time was very like, you know, how is Miley Cyrus feminist? How is Beyonce feminist? It was sort of taking all these huge major label artists who didn't really have anything to, you know, they're not living under a dictatorship, for example, mm. where, you know, cartoonists are getting their hands cut off if they criticize the <laughs> the leader of um, the political leader. And so I wanted to kind of take that feminist lens that the media had at the time and turn it towards something less mainstream and less westernized, I suppose. Yeah. I, I th- and so, yeah, kind of the, the artists and the theme kind of I kind of I like pinpoint a, a few things that were going on in the zeitgeist at the time and shove them into one thing <laughs> no it makes perfect sense and it also makes like people talk about clickbait but trying to sum up something that's intriguing and interesting to click on is a big challenge and to me that instantly mm. was like okay that i don't need to know who the artist is you're writing about and such small percentage of stuff on the internet so much of it relies on x name new song you're like well i don't okay. know who they are so can you give me a clue whether this right. is worth clicking on <laughs> based on the other hundreds of things i could click on Um, And I thought that was like another thing about it, which it surprises me when I browse around the web that the internet is still quite name of artist, name of album, word review, click. (laughs) Yeah, I think, and I think there was a time where that might have carried more weight than it does now. For example, like there, I remember, you know, you're saying like 2011, I would literally listen to or buy anything Pitchfork said was good, yeah. <laughs> and uh, but I think people have really lost trust in basically every brand name now, so that market doesn't really work as much. Um, and you know, having been an editor at various digital publications, the thing that you kind of have to do instead is be like, okay, well, what's the story? We can't really run anything unless there's a story driving. Mm. Um, like, yeah, it's, yeah, <laughs> and you, you can kind of. Uh, that'll that'll normally be the thing that you pull out if you're writing artist bios behind the scenes and stuff as well like you have to kind of create a narrative Um, and if it's really hard to do that then like you will struggle yeah and also (laughs) I think the artists will struggle as well I think a lot of music Mm -hmm. made without purpose right now feels a bit pointless like when there's so much being put into the world I guess as a writer reacting to it if someone's just Mm -hmm. making something because it sounds like a good time I'm just like are you living in the same planet and same earth we're on right now? <laughs> I kind of like, I mean, I I am very for like music for music's sake. Like I, I do enjoy a good time and I, I do like having, yeah, having worked across various uh, aspects of it, I do get very, I'm very worn down and uh, cynical about the sort of like, listen to, well, basically, let me try and say that another way. Essentially, a lot of the time the music isn't saying anything and it is just being like it's just good time party music but the pr will try to spin it as something radical because they'll pick out a marginalized Mm -hmm. aspect of the artist and really go hard on that and i find that to be really depressing (laughs) 
<laughs> no, exactly. And it's also sometimes escapism is a form of protest. Mm-hmm. Like to to go the opposite direction of everything that's going on and saying you can take 10 minutes out of your day and get lost in this. I think that's also a radical act occasionally. Yeah, like I really, I mean, it's a it's a mark of my growing up, but I have a huge, huge enthusiasm for Euro dance music. If I'm like really feeling really terrible about the world, then I'll listen to Cascada or something. Mm. And that's saying absolutely nothing, but it's so transportive and euphoric that it actually does make me more able to deal with the actual problems <laughs> of the world <laughs> materially. <laughs> it's like your brain's allowed a soundtrack to reset. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Skid- skidding and wheel spinning and those kind of things. Um, <laughs> I noticed that not only have you used your writing to platform others, that you've also, there was a collaboration you did with Galdem and Vice about Me Too. Mm. Um, have you got any other, I mean, maybe tell people a little bit about how that came about and what it was for, because music not having its Me Too moment mm-hmm. does need a catalyst. Yeah, basically, so there had been like several instances when I was working at Vice where I wanted to break a story about an instance of abuse that I had, you know, either been told about or known about firsthand and wasn't able to do it because of the way that libel laws are in the UK, um, which was just incredibly frustrating. Uh, And I think Galdem had got in touch with us because they also were having the same issue and they thought that Vice would be a good sort of like partner for a particular story that they had to break because it it kind of, they knew that we were sort of aligned with them ethically um, and that we had a much larger legal infrastructure than Garden because they're obviously an independent, uh, independent team that would have, really not been able to bore the, bear the brunt of the, any legal ramifications. Um, so, yeah, that's how, kind of how it came about. We had stories on uh, from both teams that we wanted to bring to light and kind of like a combined powers to make that happen. I was only really... That, that didn't come to fruition while I was still at Vice. It sort of began while I was there, and it, but it was really carried, carried through by uh, Zing and the team at Galdem. Um, and how do you feel about publications campaigning as much as because i had an interesting the first episode in the series was with big issue and they do a lot of Mm. quite active campaigning and it it feels like something i couldn't imagine rolling stone doing or i couldn't imagine but it feels like a new generation of publications actively putting your time energy resource platform behind the things you care about seems to be increasingly important would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think, yeah, a really good example of that is, you know, Galdem have done some amazing work, RAP. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what an amazing, an amazing platform. Uh, yeah, they did some amazing work uh, with that respect. And broadly, the Vice Vertical also did some, like, affected some genuine real change. Like, uh, Shirin Kale, who now does investigation work at The Guardian, and Zing Sheng, who now is the editor of Vice, they were... like absolutely instrumental in getting so many investigations and campaigns off the ground while they were both working on broadly one of which i think they uh i'm gonna forget the details Mm. of this but i'm pretty sure they did a they did um, a campaign about stalking and i think they 
made it so that the UK introduced a stalker's register. Like, it, like they they did multiple things there that affected genuine real change in the UK, and that's amazing. And I don't think very few there are very few places, as you say, that would really stick their neck out and push for something like that and actually get it done. Um, Do you think that the internet's opened up more space for coverage that's at the intersection of culture and politics? Or or closed it down? Because in some ways, we've got more publications than ever, but there's a lot more places to write about Taylor Swift. (laughs) Yeah, I think... I think basically... This is a hard one to talk about because I think culture has become politics to a certain extent. Like, it's very, very difficult now. Basically, everything, you know, whether it's TV, film, music, everything is sort of viewed through a political Mm. lens. So they've almost become, like, completely symbiotic. And I don't know if necessarily culture is being used so much in a political way as it is being actively politicized from the outside in a way that's almost making it a little stagnant and debilitating i don't know if that resonates with you but i do think there's kind of like a strange clash going on there at the minute that is kind of like stalling things yeah i think the culture war element or so-called culture war i think we're meant to call it um that it's been stirred up by people on the right that are against inclusion of like even Mm -hmm. the basic act of including your pronouns so that other people feel included (laughs) feels Mm -hmm. apparently is really offensive um being awake to social injustice is offensive to them um teaching history accurately not just glossing over information apparently awful Mm -hmm. but i think with identity and music it's always been quite a key part of moral panics and all the other issues around like like even with David Bowie, I think he probably <laughs> paved, probably opened some doors, even though there's obviously other things about Bowie that are, um, but let's not go into those. Um, <laughs> and I think that music has a kind of form of self-expression, mm-hmm. especially in um, countries away from where we are, like can be quite a radical act. And I don't know, I don't know whether that's increased. Is that sort of what you were saying? Um, basically, I think that that is completely true. I think culture is the thing that affects political change or can affect political change the most because it it's it has no barriers to entry. You know, like I'm not, I do a lot of cult, you know, political like, political cultural work, I suppose, but I'm not like a policy wonk. Like mm. I have no idea. I don't. I couldn't care less about Westminster politics. I don't know. I'm not like massively well informed politically. I wouldn't say like I don't. You know, I don't know what the names of certain acts and bills and that Mm. sort of thing but everything that i know about the world i have learned through music books art and i think that is obviously why the first thing that happens in a culture in a culture war quote air quotes Mm. massive scare quotes (laughs) is that they go they go for art because it's the thing that everybody can relate to everybody can understand and it's emotional and but i do think that yeah there is a huge attack on that from from the right but i do think it also stalls things when all art is viewed as inherently political yeah. because i think 
it then there's a there's a there's a there's a lot of constraints around art at the moment where I think that you know people are expected to express themselves in the air quotes right way mm. and I think that's really bad for art and I don't think people are necessarily open to interpreting art in a way that is like emotional anymore I think it's sort of all pushed through a lens of whether it's good or bad or right or wrong and that is also stopping it from being politically effective because it just gets like nixed right at the bud um and any artists that sort of do engage with some of the biggest issues of our time whether it's like the culture wars or toxic masculinity or incel culture any of those things typically those artists are instantly mired in controversy mm. and they're sort of abstracted from their art and seen as figureheads of the culture wars in a way and then it's people don't pay attention to the art at all people that talk about the 1975 or you know the most recent Kendrick Lamar album or Doja Cat they're not talking about their work they're talking about who they are as people and who they are as figures and to a certain extent they encourage that but I think the work often speaks for itself and it speaks very clearly for itself and very loudly for itself but there's very little conversation about the work does that make sense that makes perfect sense and I've got a million thoughts rushing around my head um the there's something in the moment that we're in right now like for instance when the um protest happened in iran last year musicians mm -hmm. were quite quiet when there was fundraising mm. around um humanitarian aid for ukraine musicians were quite quiet with andrew mm. tate i've not seen really any men start to form a counter narrative to to a lot of what he says and it I, I think, like, for instance, I found it interesting following Jamila Jamil, who always talks about herself as being someone who's still learning, like, and she's yeah. kind of not afraid to get things wrong, but to say the thing that she's thinking, which I think a lot of people won't say anything because they're fi they mm. fear that they don't know the complexities of an issue. Um, yeah. And I wonder to what extent, in some ways, some people are less outspoken than they would have been because they're concerned that they're not like you've obviously interviewed people and I imagine they've bitten their tongue on a topic where they probably have a lot to say but they don't mm -hmm. want to tie themselves up in knots um I don't know don't know whether that makes sense but there's quite a few musicians that I've spoken to who like for instance I worked with Charlotte Church and she was asked by Pink News about um her trans fans and why mm -hmm. why she's been embraced um by the community and she gave the most beautiful answer to the question that talked about how she'd been on a journey and understood and um like the importance of tolerance and inclusion and like it was just a really nice way of def and also diffused a lot of the kind of anti-argument of it but i don't know sorry i realize i'm rambling now but my i guess my thinking is are a lot of other artists or a lot of musicians who may be politically engaged politically quiet mm. Yes. <laughs> the short answer is <laughs> yeah. yes. Like people are, I don't know, there are obviously many, many reasons why I would imagine. Um, some of which perhaps might be their own confusion, some of which is coming from their marketing team. But yeah, I think there is, uh, there are a lot, of a lot of reasons why people are perhaps quieter than they should be or than we would expect them to be or the, that they would ordinarily be. And a part of that is, I think, having to be quote unquote right 
Um, they don't want to have to deal with the blowback of being saying something wrong. Um, or, you know, they don't, you know, for, for example, like every single person in an interview now seems to be asked what they think about trans people, mm. which just like shouldn't be a question yeah. really. That obviously it makes sense why Pink News would, would ask. Mm. And now, you know, I guess at, at this point I would say it's like not an unreasonable question to ask because then should be more answers that are on the right side of history. Mm. And they are very much drowned out at the minute by insane people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, you know, you don't want to give a heartfelt, lovely answer to that and then get dogpiled by Glenner mm. and his supporters for the next few months of your life because it makes it genuinely makes things an absolute living hell. Yeah. So I think we were in this such weird situation now where it's not just like a conversation between the artist, the interviewer and their fans who would, for example, 10 years ago go to a website specifically to read an interview with them because they like them or to pick up a magazine in them because they, you mm. know, they want to read the feature. The, everyone is speaking to the whole world all of the time and the only people who seem to respond and they respond incredibly loudly are the people that don't give two shits about that artist in the first place. Mm. They just have a really aggressive opinion about that it's like in opposition to something that they've said. And it just sucks. Yeah. <laughs> we should. No one should have to speak to that many people at once all the time. It's not normal. And you, no one can ever have a say in a conversation in that environment. Exactly. Because of the interconnectivity of everything and how everything's archived. And a comment you might make about one thing, which with without the context of who you are, for instance. Like, for instance, I posted something last week about... Um, is Taylor Swift's dominance in the music industry a bad thing? Because, like, she's just making all this money out of the live industry and the money's <laughs> not floating, it's not trickling down. And mm -hmm. instantly I was called a sexist. It's like, well, hang on mm -hmm. a minute. That wasn't it. It's like, I would have said the same criticism of Kanye or Ed Sheeran. Like, you, yeah, can't, yeah. you can't jump to the conclusion that I'm sexist because... Um, and But without the context, without me even considering the context of people knowing the kind of artists I've worked with, what we've done with Drown and yeah. Sound over the years, I can see how someone might jump to that conclusion. Um, yeah. So the most abuse that I've ever got on an article is is for something that I hadn't even written yet, <laughs> <laughs> and was and an article that literally didn't exist, yeah. and I was just sort of canvassing quotes for basically, and this was a really, really, really long time ago now, but the response to that was essentially like very clearly split down the middle between people who knew me and people who didn't. Mm. And that taught me, I'm glad that I got that lesson early on because it taught me a lot about how the internet works yeah. with respect to this sort of thing, basically. The um, this context is, is, is often so crucial. And I think, mm -hmm. like you said, that idea that things can become global, like um, the John, forgotten his name, the So You've Been Publicly Shamed, John Ronson book um, oh, yeah. about all of that is quite interesting if anyone wants to dive into it. Um, which brings me on to my next question is what role do you think music journalism or music writing and culture writing will have during the UK and US elections next year? Because I feel like there isn't the spaces, as we've just said, for a lot of artists that, to have these conversations. And I'd be mm. curious what your hopes and fears are, not to quote Keen. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a interesting question because i think this the role of culture definitely was you know it definitely came up a lot in the last u.s election 
mainly because everyone was talking about whether we would have amazing music now that mm. Trump was president. <laughs> and the answer is no. <laughs> not, not necessarily. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would like... Oh God, I don't even know anymore. You know, like I, <laughs> I really don't. I really don't know because I've become I've become very cynical about the role of the media in politics generally, and I really don't exclude culture media from that. Um, at the very least, what I hope doesn't happen is we kind of get a repeat of the past, where you know it's basically like status quo, but more diverse mm. because that's really not like helpful for anybody i think that we're at a point where we are just desperate for real instrumental material change and i don't know if that's something that the music industry is even able to reckon with because the music industry also needs to be needs to be completely overhauled because there is so much exploitation within it i really don't think that it's the thing that is going to change anyone's minds yeah. really um but you know the grass the grassroots industry is is that's where all that's you know it's always from the bottom up that all of the good work is going to happen and i really do hope that you know the, the grassroots industry in the uk especially is taking an absolute hammering at the minute whether it's because of brexit or the cost of living crisis or you know the, the impact of covid tories generally gunning for the arts mm. um but i really hope that there's more of a focus on what is happening at that level and less of a focus on what is happening with major label artists, basically, because I think that's the only way that anyone's going to have an honest conversation about anything. Yeah. I think also economically, the media is obviously in a precarious place and a lot of the people that can afford to develop their career um, are going to mm -hmm. not be from working class backgrounds. And yeah, exactly. And then, then you kind of get, you end up with a landscape where you have a lot of people speaking on behalf of other people, which mm. are, but they, you know, they might be on, they might be right, but it won't connect with anybody because it doesn't matter to them. It's not real to them. And I think it's really, really important that we platform artists and tell stories that are reflective of real people mm. or the majority of people in the UK who are not, you know, didn't go to private school, didn't go to Brit school and have very different concerns yeah. um in all the different places you you've been you've written um how have you found pitching some of your ideas are there places where you're almost encouraged to um to make what you're writing kind of broader or i'm just curious what your experience has been like of writing elsewhere because i think it's something which People consume magazines and might have read your writing, but they might not know like some of the the, the process involved behind that. Mm. Um, I think sort of back going back to what I said before, I think you really, regardless of what you're pitching, you if if it's you know if it's journalism, <laughs> regardless of what you're pitching, you kind of have to come come with a story, whether it's an artist that you really want to boost, or you know a scene of artists, or you know, literally what or you know whatever it is you do have to have a story. You have to have a reason why they're worth talking about, what, how they relate to, you know, any broader conversations that are happening. Yeah, you need a narrative there. You need it, and you need a good one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to be transparent, like, it is very, very... It's almost impossible to place an artist profile these days. Like, they're, they're all... 
arranged in-house and they're given to in-house writers mm. um and there are reasons for that good and bad um so the thing that i tend to if i'm doing profiles for other places 90 percent chances that they came to me and asked me to write about Mm. <laughs> a certain artist because I've sort of built a reputation for myself as uh, <laughs> covering someone put it uh, someone asked me to do a profile recently of someone and they said you're good at writing about weird jarring guitar music <laughs> <laughs> that is very niche why don't you do yeah. this <laughs> uh, that's my my uh, my beat yeah. I suppose now. <laughs> um but yeah I, and if I'm pitching the things that usually get picked up are when I have an idea about something like if I, it's like a, an essay and usually it's because I have taken sort of a odd view of a either either like a, a, a really specific view on something very mainstream so say for example it's a very uh very niche take on Love Island mm. which you know it's like an interesting thing interesting angle on a thing that literally everyone has heard of or you kind of take like kind of like you know like I did with that piece about uh female artists you know using music as resistance you sort of take a few points that are happening in the ether and you kind of bring them together to create a story out of it um but honestly I think I'm pretty sure that most people if they're commissioning me for anything they do it because of my tone because I have like a really specific sense of humor or mm -hmm. way of writing or something and I think that that has, is mostly <laughs> why i get asked to do anything <laughs> i got my job at vice because i was literally because i was funny yeah. um they didn't they didn't look at my qualifications they didn't ask i didn't even interview me they didn't ask me anything they only gave me a job because i was funny so i think that is uh <laughs> that's kind of been the theme of my career which is interesting because some of the pieces you've written have been quite serious and i know <laughs> the, um, but the, but often it is that thing of the jokers are often the ones with the kind of the, the hidden depths aren't they it's like sometimes to be funny you need to to laugh at the world yeah i do i do it less these days i think because there's just less room for it but i really do try to what i've always wanted to do is to smuggle very serious talking points into pop culture through humor mm. and like very accessible topics even if the stuff that i'm talking about is like quite heavy mm. um so that's kind of always what I'm trying to do with things as well. Like we did that a lot, even when me and Lauren O'Neill at Vice were covering Love Island. Like the things that we were talking about were pretty heavy. Like it's all about toxic masculinity, like kind of a lot of, uh, you know, slut shaming towards women and things that are, you know, domestic abuse, like things that are very unpleasant. Mm. But we made them or at least tried to make them accessible through writing about them in a very thoughtful way that isn't afraid mm. to have a laugh as well yeah because i think one of the things i found when i was googling um was something really filthy you'd written about lana del rey and someone absolutely loved how filthy it was <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. am i right in thinking am i right in thinking you did a recent lecture on lana yes um yes thank you for noticing i did yes uh there's a film club in london called deeper into movies and they have a lecture series basically and it's very very broad church of people talking about burial or you know uh a really great writer called philippa snow did a lecture about uh art whether jackass was violence or art or both <laughs> <laughs> um and yeah, I ended up, they asked me to do one if I had any thoughts on Lana Del Rey that would work for a lecture, basically. And I had a million thoughts that would <laughs> <laughs> and tried to shove them all into 50 minutes. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, it was all about sort of themes of pain and pleasure and uh, think, yeah, very depraved <laughs> themes of her work. Um, and that was a really, that was actually a really refreshing experience because it really wasn't, it was, well, first of all, it was my first experience of sort of like public speaking, but I wasn't really teaching anyone mm. anything. Normally, if I get asked to speak in public, it's because I'm giving my thoughts about journalism or something like that. But this was basically like reading an article aloud to a room full of mm. people and seeing how they respond in real time, which was terrifying. <laughs> um, but it went really well. And like people were so lovely and genuinely engaged in it and we did a lana karaoke afterwards as well where people got up and uh, <laughs> just like screamed and lana is very very hard to do on karaoke yeah. i will uh say right now it's all about the intonation yeah, was... and the pace and everything isn't it it's like she's not always in time with the song and uh-huh yeah, yeah. and it's she's a i you really don't recognize how amazing someone is as a singer mm. until you try to do it on karaoke yeah. um <laughs> after like three wines uh, but yeah, that uh, that was a great experience, and I would ki- I was kind of thinking at the time I would love to see more of this in culture writing because it's a really great way of sharing your ideas and t- with people. And like I said before, it's like you're sharing it with a room full of people who want to be mm. there. They've volunteered to be there. You're if you know if I'd said if I'd published that essay, it's not on the internet or anything. But like if if I published that essay, I'm sure that there would be loads of blowback about particular things that I've said in it, for example. But like, if someone is sat there in a room with you, it's it's really more like having a conversation. Mm-hmm. Like they're really thinking about what you're saying. Like they're viewing it in the context of, you know, who Deeper Into Movies is, who I am, like why we're doing it. And, you know, I had some amazing conversations with people afterwards that were sort of continuing on the themes that I brought, brought up in the lecture. And I would honestly love to do more of that. And I would love to see more people creating spaces to do things like that, because I think it's way more engaging, constructive, thought provoking than just chucking something on the Internet and having a load of people get angry at you. (laughs) (laughs) And, And in a way, people that are funding it being happy because the anger drove traffic like like, (laughs) yeah exactly and then sort of like throwing you out there going can you do this thing and you're like yeah but that's going to get me loads more abuse and I think Mm -hmm. there's like it's been interesting hearing people like Taylor Lorenz talk about the lack of protection and the the chat I did with um Kat Tembarge she talked a bit about when her reporting has led to her being trolled and like the there there is some resource around journalists but not anywhere near enough and I guess yeah part of what you just said there is is something that gives a bit of a clue of where the internet could head next like subscription models will allow for stuff to go out and only be available to subscribers um like i really love the idea of hearing what you just said as an audio essay so somewhere between an audio (laughs) book and a podcast um yes it's it's interesting you should bring that up because one thing that i and he's not like a journalist or anything but one person who i think is doing amazing work in like the cultural sphere is uh you know blind you know blind boy yeah yeah he's yeah so he's a irish podcaster and writer who was a member of that music group called the rubber bandits mm. who had that sick song about uh fuck your honda civic <laughs> i have a horse outside <laughs> um he has this amazing podcast that really does blur the line between uh between literature and podcasting mm. basically because he just talks 
he does hot he does this section called a hot take where it is just an op-ed mm. but he's reading it he's you know he's talking out loud he's written it beforehand and he's reading it in a way that is very funny and very personable and he's got this like gentle little music in the background and it just it changes it changes what it is completely even though it was written and could have been published on i don't know in, not probably not in the guardian yeah. music in op-ed section because that's a terrifying but definitely place on but you know it could it could have been on the internet yeah, yeah. <laughs> but because he's reading it out you can hear his voice you can sense where the beats are and where you know where the yeah it's just, it just changes the whole thing and i do think that that is an avenue of you know, that should be of interest to people especially in culture culture writing yeah, when, or culture journalism when i first talked about this podcast i started thinking about it as an online publication as an audio publication um mm. and the idea that some of the episodes would be 2 minutes long and some of them would be 2 hours um mm. like a magazine has short pieces and long pieces and when I started recording them, I was a bit like, well, I need to find an audience first before I start messing mm. around with the format too much. Um, and But I think going forwards, there's something in that concept of, I mean, I really like listening to like both the New York Times daily podcast has like a Sunday read. So it's mm -hmm. one of their like pieces just read by someone that would normally read an audio book. Yeah. And I think The Guardian have got their long reads one and... Um, so I think there's definitely a format out there. And like, mm. I quite like the idea of audiobooks, but I also like the idea of an audio essay collection. So um, yeah. it feels like some of the things that we could do going forwards um, as a medium, <laughs> um, <laughs> that if it's going to meet people where they are, like for instance, actually for, I was kind of curious while I was walking around the kitchen doing chores this morning to listen to one of your articles being played. Um, and there's mm. like some app that will just do like an AI voice reading it. Um, it was okay, <laughs> but it didn't, feature... didn't capture it. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a feature on uh, Vice has it, Crack Magazine mm. definitely has it, where I don't know, I really, yeah, I, I really don't know. They can't have hired people to read them all out because it's on like every article mm. that they have. It must just be an AI thing. But yeah, it's at the top of every piece and you can just press play instead of reading it. Mm. And it's just some like random guy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> reading out your yeah reading out the words which is very if you've written it is very weird mm. um i mean to change the gender of the writing that, it's like yeah yeah and like they made it some southern mm. uh, <laughs> which you know i know i don't sound very welsh yeah. but even you know in in theory that upsets me <laughs> um, uh yeah uh i'm just curious is there anything else you feel like the future needs or um, I mean, obviously we need publications to still have money <laughs> and we need audiences yes. to value, value <laughs> it. And one of the reasons for doing this series is I really want people to, to like music appreciation has always been something that we've understood, but then mm -hmm. the appreciation and the value of journalism has always been there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. I think there's, you know, there's that joke always, isn't there? Where the only people that read music journalism are music journalists. Mm. <laughs> And then it sort of becomes just an enormous circle joke, which is kind of the case when uh, anyone talks about any about music on Twitter as well. The only people that are really having a conversation about it are like music mm. journalists. <laughs> um, so, what was the question again? What, what sort of things? <laughs> what, what sort of things do you think we need or hope for in the future of music media? It doesn't have oh, to necessarily I mean, be journalism. Yeah, I mean, 
more music media. I hate to say more, but there isn't really any music media anymore mm. that's dedicated because most publications completely got rid of their music sections or folded them into the the brand at large at an enormous disservice to music itself because music specifically, I think, is really... Un- music journalism is really undervalued in the industry as something that anyone can do, which I really don't think is true. No. <laughs> I think, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that I'm particularly good at it or anything, but you I are. think, you know, for example, like there's a music critic at, at Vulture called Craig Jenkins, who's the most like, he has the broadest, he just knows, he seems to know everything. He's a brilliant critic. He's literally Pulitzer nominated, so he doesn't mm. need me to say this about him. But like, <laughs> he's an absolutely fun, he used to work at Noisy basically, which mm. is, you know, where, uh, honestly, I, I think a lot of brilliant, brilliant music critics all came through Noisy and most of them are now not even writing for a living mm. anymore, which to me is just insane because it really does sort of show how little yeah like how little value there is placed on it as a thing and there's no there's no career development especially if you're a new media company where it's all click driven it kind of goes very south very quickly in terms of what you're able to do Mm. the whole yeah i don't know i'm very cynical about things at the minute i feel like a like uh, (laughs) about 20 years older than i actually Mm. am because i kind of like began a career in an industry that now basically feels like it's gone mm. um, and in the space of about seven years. Uh, <laughs> so I feel very like shell-shocked by it still, to be honest. So it's really hard to to know what is going on or where to go in the future. But I do think, I think that there is appetite for good music writing because there always has been, been, there always will be. There, even like, uh, do you see Ice Spice said the other day that she she doesn't value the cri- the opinions of her fans. She wants to know what music critics say because at least they know what they're talking about. And I was like, yes, <laughs> put some respect, <laughs> put some respect on the critic's name. But I do think I do wonder if uh, you know the time will come back around where there is quite a lot of support and room for people who know what they're talking about talking about music, basically, because there is a huge lack of it at the minute, especially in writing. Not so much. There is a, there's a few podcasts I think that are doing a brilliant job, but again, they're they're more historically focused mm. than like contemporary. But I think there needs to the model needs to change. I don't think inter- like writing about music on the internet is viable for anybody yeah. in any way. <laughs> I, th- I think I think some of the there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of celebrities and rich leftists that I've heard about as in. They seem to exist. Mm. People are always complaining about them. If any of you are listening, (laughs) please start a magazine (laughs) and don't start it because you want to be the editor-in-chief. Just Mm. fund it and let other cool, good people do their job. (laughs) That is like my main thing. No one wants to be cool anymore. Everyone wants the title of the job. And I blame hustle culture for Mm. this. But like rich people should just fund... It's their duty to fund good things by other people and appoint people who are really good at doing those things to do them, not just sit in the one job that everyone else could be doing better, making the industry much worse. <laughs> <laughs> that is my one request. Please, if you have money, yeah. start a magazine, start a publication, pay people to do their jobs, please. <laughs> and, I, and I think also, like, please understand the value of what it does for the entire ecosystem. The, yeah. the like... It's like when you were saying, it's like, do we don't need music writing on the internet? It's like, well, people don't really DJ on the internet. Like, I know some people do on yeah. Twitch, but 
you go to a club to hear a DJ. So like, uh-huh. why are you going to go into the soup of the internet to find, I keep using the word soup in this podcast. It must be because I keep <laughs> recording them before lunch. Um, and I'm not even going to have soup for lunch. Um, but something about the idea of like, I loved Tumblr because it felt like DJing content. Like, and I hate mm. the word content, but it allowed me to post anything I wanted to. And it wasn't, yeah. was low kind of latency of effort. You could post a YouTube video and write a thousand words, or you could post a SoundCloud link and post two words. It's, yeah. um, but I think that that then made the value of sharing and recommending things drop. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about a lot of the writing of yours that I've read is that you've, you've interviewed huge stars and that brings an audience to you and a kind of name recognition to you. And then you've covered big topics to bring artists in and, I don't see enough of that happening when I browse around music magazines. Like I want to get to know a writer, trust them, mm. find out bits about their taste, work out that about a third of their music taste is music I really don't like. And two thirds of it is stuff <laughs> that I'm going to adore. Um, or a third of it is stuff that I'm not going to understand at first, but I'm going to really like getting into. Like I quite like the fact that some people ask me for music recommendations and they kind of expect, they kind of know, like, I like Wolf Alice and Paramore and, like, uh-huh. but it's, like, I'm quite happy to send someone a Pharmacon track who's this, like, amazing yeah. industrial noise artist or, like, Alluvium or, like, or, like, it's all, this, it's quite interesting what people expect when they ask for a recommendation. It's, like, my mm-hmm. taste doesn't sit in one place, but yeah. there are about 30 bands I like. that sound like Deus and Autolux and, like, basically <laughs> art rock bands. Um, yeah. and that's kind of my go-to for lots of things. Um, but no, I've just been thinking a lot about the publications aren't serving the writers. They're not necessarily serving the mm-hmm. readers and they're not really serving mm-hmm. artists because if someone was to invest in this, the benefit would be you'd put more up, more artists on a slightly bigger pedestal. You'd bring joy to people that are looking for a 15 minute distraction every day to read about music. And I don't know, I, I'm stunned that byline times have just launched in print and like as a political newspaper to launch in this market feels so rare (laughs) but i can't remember the last time a magazine launched like you wrote something for the relaunched cream recently but i keep Mm. mentioning that to people they're like what cream's back and i'm like yeah it's like how do people not know yeah i know i it doesn't seem to have a very big reach Mm. new cream and i wonder yeah I, i wonder why why that is i mean i did but order three do, copies again, and it was 100 quid including the postage so yeah, that's you can't one really of the downsides the UK, yeah <laughs> yeah you can't really buy it here yeah. it's i wonder if it's like a different uh has a different uh resonance in yeah. the us where it's more readily available um anyway i think we've run both run out of bandwidth so <laughs> No, you asked a did you, you asked a question as part of this, and I, forgot, I was trying to remember what it was. My brain. <laughs> well, it's not been for the last hour, so um, I can't. I think my question was around. See, my my brain is like darting around too many thoughts. Well, yeah, okay. So one thing I will say is that I consider myself to be very lucky that I ended up working at Vice at the time that I did, because basically what they did was give me the longest possible leash to write about basically anything that I wanted in the way that I wanted and that is the only reason why I've been able to have the career that I have now that is no longer happening because publications don't have enough staff for starters they most don't have any mm. <laughs> not in a writer's writing staff anyway they have editors but that's it um 
there's very the freelancers are very irregular because they there's very little commissioning budgets like people young writers especially i really don't know how like kudos to anyone who's able to make a living off it because there's just not one platform that will kind of like support you anymore like you just have to show throw shit at the wall and see what sticks and you know i at least had a good five years where i had a home to do whatever it was i wanted and that's the only reason i've been able to do what i've what i've done (laughs) that feels like the perfect way to end um thank you so much for your time that's been really interesting thank you for listening to the drowned in sound podcast You will find all the links to Emma Garland's work in the show description. Anyone wishing to fund a music magazine should email sean at drownedinsound.org. This podcast was hosted, produced and lightly edited by Sean Adams. Thank you for listening. Bye for now.